Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting this morning from a rare, nearly bluebird day here in south-central British Columbia. In today's program, we continue our series on the conservation of humanity, examining the Wuhan flu COVID-19 scamdemic and the tyrannical and nonsensical reaction by governments across the planet. Specifically, we will be presenting a potential recovery plan, a pathway forward to move beyond this pathetic chapter in human history. Today, we're very fortunate to once more host Dr. Paul Elias Alexander. Dr. Alexander received his bachelor's degree in epidemiology from McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, a master's degree from Oxford University, and a PhD from McMaster's University Department of Health Research Methods, Evidence and Impact. Dr. Alexander previously appeared on the program in episode 81, and I encourage listeners to tune into that excellent and informative episode if they've not already done so. I would like to dedicate this episode to Uncle Val Hogland, who recently passed away in Jamaica. He will be greatly missed by all his family and friends. May you rest in peace, Uncle Val, and God bless you. Dr. Alexander, tremendous honor to host you again today. Uh, Thank you so much for your time, and welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, sir. And uh, once again, it's an honor and a privilege. And um, this is a tremendous platform, yours. And um, it'd be good to share some of my thoughts. And I'm speaking as an academic scientist today. Very good. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. So maybe we could begin, begin today by providing the listeners with a, a brief uh, description of your credentials and experience within the medical field. Uh, okay, so you did some introduction. So my graduate uh, training um, is in uh, epidemiology from the University of Toronto. Um, I did a master's degree there, and I also I moved on to Oxford in a graduate program in evidence-based medicine. Um, I also did a short certificate in biological warfare at Johns Hopkins in 2001. I did schooling. I was lectured there by Dr. Donald, Donald Henderson, who actually eradicated smallpox. <clears throat> and I was very interested back then in the biological warfare and how potential bioactors in the world could weaponize pathogen like smallpox and anthrax, etc. And uh, we developed communications and like a kind of a friendship where I even asked him to uh, supervise my doctoral degree, and Dr. Henderson agreed. But at that time, too, I was also soliciting McMaster, and I decided to do my, my PhD at McMaster under Dr. Gordon Guyatt, <laughs> who is still at McMaster. He is the father of evidence, the founder of evidence-based medicine with Dr. Dave Sackle. And uh, as you would know, McMaster in Canada, uh, as, a, as a university, I think it probably just cracked the top 100. So you wouldn't say it's a Harvard or Stanford, et cetera. But in terms of research methodology and evidence-based medicine, it's a unique institution in that within that institution has the top research method school in the world. And the top methodologist, that's people involved in research methods, evidence-based medicine, are at McMaster approximately seven of the top 10, and Dr. Guyatt is the founder. So I did my doctorate with him. I did my postdoc with him. We remain personal friends. <clears throat> I only have good things to say about McMaster and Dr. Guyatt. Um, as part of, uh, it's funny in life though, that um, you know I took a position that uh, I was actually working for the WHO, Pan American Health, at the beginning of this, emergency in January, February 2020, when we started to get wind of this coming out of um, 
China and Lombardy, Italy. And during that time, WHO had asked me to help set up the evidence sensitive, help set up their response to COVID because they did not have a response in place yet. And they needed people who could help them gather all of the evidence quickly and make sense of what was happening globally so that they could make <clears throat> position statements to the world and they could understand how to move forward. My skills training coming out of Mac and the Dr. Gaiat is very niche and very sophisticated. It's recognized globally, those of us who come out of that training program. So when they asked me, I was kind of taken aback. I didn't know I could have handled that responsibility, but I was doing it. And about beginning of end of April, beginning of May, I got requested by the United States government, Trump administration, to come to Washington and to inform, to help provide that same technical expertise I was doing at WHO, but to them. So around the middle end of May, I was actually going to I was advising WHO on the pandemic to respond, how to respond. And I was beginning to work at Health and Human Services on the Trump administration in DC in the same capacity. And um, I toggled that for about a month where I was kind of asked to see if I could balance both, which is kind of interesting. But, but across time, uh, due to communications and stuff and the ethics commissioner of the United States government met with me to advise me that I couldn't maintain the position of WHO because of the nature of the information I was dealing with and sensitive discussions. Also, I was getting pushed by WHO. So, you know, we're 19, 20 months into this. <clears throat> and a lot has been said about a lot of good people, including our host here, about our efforts to try and educate the public and, and help the public understand the other side. So there's two sides to everything. We've been locked out because the science is on our side. 100% of the science, but but the media and those who are involved in this pandemic, whether it was a created, manufactured, accidental, that's separate, this important discussion to have. But the point is decisions were made by media, the Facebooks, the Twitter, et cetera, the YouTubes to shut us out. This is not a matter that we don't know what we're saying. The problem is they knew we knew what we were saying, and we have the science on our side. So they made this uniform decision to just cut us out. So we don't have the platform, and we need to depend on platforms like these to bring the message to you. Because what you've been told is not just half of the story, it's the wrong side of the story, and you've been told falsehoods and lies. So as an example, I'll give you a nice little nugget. WHO PAHO. Because of my, I, I had friends there and connections because I also worked at WHO in 2008 in a kind of a secondment position when I was working for Health Canada. Canada, um, I was an epidemiologist for the Canadian government for 12 years. I had a, I got a position in WHO regional office for Europe in 2008, 2009, and nine <clears throat> as a regional epidemiologist stationed in Copenhagen. Uh, in Denmark, Copenhagen, and um, uh, I, uh, the four European countries of Russia, Poland, Ukraine, and Turkey, the nature of the projects that I was doing, they reported into my desk. 
So I had to travel around to these countries and stuff. And I gained a lot of acquaintances and friends. So I, I could talk to people at WHO at the highest of levels, even after I departed. So when I was working there, whilst with the Trump administration, I was having discussions with them. And at that point, Trump was pulling out of WHO for his reasons, which I thought some of them were credible. I was actually being lobbied by WHO. They were asking me to play a role in seeing who I could deal with and talk to in the Trump administration to prevent that withdrawal. Now, first of all, I was new <laughs> to DC and new to Trump and the whole that administration. And it's not even that it was above my pay grade in the sense that I was I was providing technical scientific support to the to the assistant secretary and which reports right there. I worked right with the secretary's office. So so I had links, but the point is that I felt that that was a crazy request. And that's the kind of request that would put you in jail. And um, that was not for me to do. And uh, I made it known to them. They weren't too happy because they felt that, well, I was working with them kind of first and that um, we all knew each other. So, you know, wouldn't you be able to speak to people? And I, and I said, well, no, that's impossible. I can't do something like that. That violate all the ethical rules. And I wasn't prepared to do that. And at that point, too, is another nugget that, I mean, I'm sharing now because as time has gone, I've, I've gotten very angry. I've gotten angry as to the, what has happened to this world, my world and your world and my country, and what is happening to good people who are losing their jobs because they're making a decision. They don't want a vaccine that has not been properly safety tested and is causing deaths and harms. They understand natural immunity is far more robust and superior. They don't want their children vaccinated. So they, they know all of these things and I'm seeing how they're pilloried and they're losing their employment. They're gonna probably lose their homes and their lives. This is a serious, serious matter. So I've made some decisions in my mind that I'm gonna continue my scientific push, but I'm gonna speak as bluntly and as openly and as freely as I want, and I could, to the extent that I wouldn't violate things I should not say. So, so the reality about it is that, um, is that, uh, you know, I had discussions with people at WHO at the highest levels um, around February or March. This was before I joined Trump administration, and um, because I was actually working already for. Geneva Paho in providing them the technical input. So I had conversation. I was working for them. So so I had bona fide paperwork as a consultant. And you know, different people would talk to me. I think because of my past role in Europe office and over time and because of my background in biological warfare. Um, I'm very well self-taught in the area, although I did do a certificate program at Johns Hopkins in 2001. So I kind of know what I'm talking about. And people started to talk to me to find out what were my views, because a lot of the stuff that was going on in the media. And um, I'll just share something that in discussions with some persons at the WHO office in Geneva, one person in the WHO office in Europe 
which is in Copenhagen, and one in DC. Basically, how it was explained to me is that they felt at a very, very high level internally at who that there was a biological warfare, a biological weapons research program taking place there. And that they felt strongly that what happened emerged from the laboratory. It was not no wet market and natural release. It was, it emerged from the laboratory. And in our discussions, it was as if to get my view on did I think it was intentional or accidental. And I, I think um, I didn't want to wade into that, uh, but based on a lot that I know and what I understand about biowarfare, and based on what they told me, it seems that there is this dictum, there's this understanding that there was a, it's almost as if it was an intentional accident. It's not, it's not, it's not that this did not happen just by accident. And uh, that raises a lot of implications and complications because that's a very, very serious thing to say. And I stepped back to that point in terms of what, how I felt, what I felt took place. I still want to withhold judgment, but I'm sharing with you at the highest levels of WHO, they understand that something not proper took place here. And yes, now they're back in the news saying we need to investigate blah, 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 blah. Yeah, we need to investigate this because this is a very, very serious matter. Because if it can be shown, and if it is shown across time, whether it takes 20 years to figure out this out, that the United States was, was attacked using some of their language, their language in some way, via, via low level or deliberate or accidental, as a means to grind the economy to a halt and damage the United States, damage a certain president, his administration, whatever. We need to figure this out because many people have died and many people will continue to die still. And um, we're not even talking about the response is not being proper, but, but, but the reality is something, something improper happened here. And we need to understand, so it is, it, we need to hold people accountable regardless of where they are. If there are people in the United States government that played a role in this in any manner, Regardless of who they are, they have to be held accountable at some point. So, so uh, I, I am speaking now with a little more of my, um, how should I say, um, the, the, the lens that I was speaking from before, trying to be much more guarded. I want to be a little more freely now as I speak because, because I think we are in a war. Before it was pure science to me and just looking at the data and trying to articulate the evidence. But I understand now more, something more than science is at play here, way more than science. This is not about what the epidemiology is or what does the data tell us today. This is about uh, something bigger and uh, the end result is this is damaging us and destroying the world, just tearing our societies apart. And um, 
So if I can play a role in, in bringing the science forward, recognizing now that this is this move from being a public health response to being a political response way over a year now. Maybe from the beginning, this was just a political response. And, it, and, and it's a devastating thing that has happened. I mean, when my wife tells me, you know, Paul, I looked at all my life and I grew up in Canada and all of that and that. I, I travel across the world and never in my wildest dreams as a little kid even playing. And you told me 40 years into the future, um, this was going to happen in 2020, February and all this. I'd never believe you. I think you, you, you're nuts. So you know, it's, 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 it's bizarre and it's very scary. This is a scary, scary time, particularly for us parents with children and stuff. It's very, very scary. So, you know, Dr. Alexander, I thank you for sharing that information. And it certainly coincides with the research that I've been doing uh, over the last 18 months. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you know, but I recently had uh, Dr. Lee Min Yang on the show, uh, who, of course, is the CCP defector, uh, who has uh, unequivocally stated that according to her research, uh, her own personal research, plus her contacts within the CCP, including the virology, uh, Wuhan Virology Institute, that this is undeniably a genetically altered virus, which the backbone is the original SARS, and that the CCP has a, a dedicated and declared bioweapons program. And within that declaration, they also state that this bioweapon shouldn't be overt so that it you know wipes out 20-30% of the population and can be obviously identified as such. But rather, as you suggest, it should be something that has an attrition rate, which soaks up resources and you know causes three people to care for one person, uh, which, it, which has had this devastating economic effect. And if we look at things at one level deeper, since the Carter administration in 1974 and the creation of the Trilateral Commission with the, the technocrats who are behind it, the West, the average person in the West sees China and the CCP as this specter of evil, where in reality, the CCP is actually propped up by this global technocratic movement, uh, Her, you know, Henry Kissinger and, and the likes of these, the Rockefellers and so forth. And so when you say that, you know, was this a political response from the beginning, you know, I would argue that this was a completely uh, orchestrated event, uh, likely by the, the technocrat uh, globalists who obviously were not in favor of Trump and the direction he was taking the country, uh, which was a populist patriotic movement, which would have rejected all of those globalist uh, ideologies, open borders, you know, the, the transhuman movement, the, the transgender movement, all of these things which are essentially trying to divide and decay our, our modern society. And so to hear from you that you have firsthand knowledge that early on that the WHO was concerned that this was a, a bio potential bioweapon release, I think that at this day, this day today, we need to look at that 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 is exactly what this is, and then we and then you know when we talk about these vaccines, well, we need to move one step further that now we have these big pharma which are obviously you know uh, administered and and uh, are, are run by these global technocrats. That they are now injecting a bio-warfare bio target into the arms of millions upon millions of people. And I just had uh, Dr. Stephanie Senefon from MIT, who's been doing a lot of research in terms of the biologic activities of these spike proteins within the body. 
And so the damaging effects that the spike protein is having from uh, like a real COVID-19 infection, we now have this proliferation of this specific target, a series of, of proteins which have been amassed and, and genetically engineered and are causing uh, untold consequences, you know, particularly focused on the, the cardiac problems as well as neurodegenerative diseases. And it appears that we may be having a, you know, within the next, we, we don't know how fast these um, uh, issues are going to manifest, but certainly there's a, there's a link which uh, from the microRNAs that are being emitted from these exosomes, there may be a whole pathology towards uh, uh, Parkinson's and other prion-like diseases like ALS and Alzheimer's and so forth. And I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding the damage that these potentially are going to create. And as we have governments across the world pushing for a third and fourth and God knows how many boosters, I mean, first of all, the booster shots contain a spike protein from the wild Wuhan strain, which is really no longer in circulation and provides no benefit for the emerging variants that are out there. And so that in and of itself is, is ludicrous and it's not based in science. And the damaging effects of these third and fourth and continuing boosters will only continue to magnify. And so I, mean, I think at this point, you know, we, we need to look at these leaders and the, and the folks within these health agencies that are making these recommendations or mandates and or withholding life-saving medication like here in Canada, you know, the, the if, just recently here in, in uh, Kelowna, the hospital, patients are smuggling ivermectin into the hospitals to treat their patients. The doctors are startled when the patient makes a remarkable recovery, immediately worries that they're on ivermectin, searches their room, finds the medication, throws it in the garbage, and these patients immediately go the other way and, and some of them are dying. And so, you know, I think at this point, you know, to be bold, we are dealing with a, with a gang of murderers and there's no other way to look at it. When, when, when you know, Bonnie Henry or, or any of these health officials stand on the podium and make these edicts and demand compliance, you know, they tell you that you have to inject your 12-year-old child so that he can play a sport or she can go to a movie theater or you can all go out to a, a restaurant as a family. That is a recipe for death and destruction and it has to stop. Yeah. And you know what, you know, I, I, I agree with basically everything that you're saying. And the reality about it is, I'm, I'm saying it because we live in a good governance society. So we're not living in the Wild West anymore. We're not living in, in those countries where there's no law and order. So my, the way I'm seeing it, and I think you probably agree is that at some point, we need these things properly. We, we need to go back and see who did what, who decided to do what, what were their decision making and their power. And did they make decisions not grounded in the evidence or the science? And did their decisions harm people? And I am of the belief that I don't care who you are in a society. I think that if you harmed people by your decision making, I think you have to be held accountable and punished with the fullest extent of the law. And, and made to pay the same way that people have lost their families, they've lost their elderly. I mean, if we have early treatment from the word go, that we showed scientifically and with the data that it reduces your risk of hospitalization and death by about 80 to 85%. I mean, if, when an elderly person is in their private home, or let's say in a nursing home in British Columbia, and that elderly person, 80 85, has a couple of underlying medical conditions and then 
let's say they get infected, as they start showing symptoms, if you do not begin treatment and you let that person sit down for about 10, 12 days, by that time the breathing difficulty gets pretty bad. They are so far along in the disease sequelae that by the time they touch the emergency room door, their risk of 28-day mortality is 38 to 40%. So there's a strong likelihood that they're not going to be leaving the hospital. So, so when you use the words like murder and stuff, I, I, I want to use those words too. And I want to say, I want to say that if if decision making was done from political, you see, this is the point. We want these things examined in a proper setting. I want it examined in a proper legal setting by very smart scholarly people who look at the evidence properly at some point and if decisions were made more from politics and stuff these people have to be held to account because many thousands of people die we've told them over a year now that it is the staff in these nursing homes that are bringing the infection in and killing our grandparents and our parents now not the liberty because the staff are just following the rules and policies of the nursing home and some of these staff work three, four different jobs a day in different homes. They jump around, make a proper salary. So, you know, I, I, I feel for them too. They, they're not wealthy people and, and, and they're caring for our family. But I have in laws in nursing homes in Canada and I've been through it. They're both around 90 years old and they're still there. And many of the people in their homes have died. And what we've been through is basically we get an email and a telephone call from the home periodically to say, okay, well, you can't come and visit for the next two months because we're going to lock down. We're going to restrict your father or whoever in their room for the next X amount of time. There's no showering. There's no nothing. There's no contact with anyone. It, it, it is the most horrendous, horrible situation our elderly are put through and have experienced in the last 18, 19 months. We have suffered them in Canada. We have killed many of our elderly by the policies of the federal, provincial, local, municipal government. Same in the United States, same in UK, everywhere. When 80% of the persons who died in Canada, in let's say Ontario, on Toronto died, came from nursing homes. Something was very wrong. Something was very wrong. And you could trace a lot of our, our um, problems in Canada, back to our public health schools too. And I mean, I, I did one graduate degree. One of them came from the University of Toronto. Well, actually I did graduate school toward York University in Health Sciences, but my epidemiology degree came from UFT. And I could remember, and I know, again, I'm beginning to speak now very unbridled, so I'm being as blunt as possible. When I did my epidemiology degree at the University of Toronto, um, when we came out of uh, grad school, I remember when we would leave my, uh, at that point, they, they now have changed public health school in University of Toronto to the Dalai Lana Public Health School. Before my, my uh, I was by the Faculty of Medicine and by King's Circle in McMurrick Building. And when, when we would finish our classes, you know, we're all doing a master's degree in FPA, you know, you're all feeling good. The smart people are, I mean, these were very smart people technically, very good undergraduate degrees and stuff. So we would take the bus together on the train. We'd sit down in the coffee shops back then and chat about our class and just about uh, disease and disease outbreak and getting to know each other. And by the end of the epidemiology degree, when we all graduated, 
there was one thing that we all shared with each other was remarkable to me. We admitted that we were a bunch of idiots. We admitted to each other that we were the most incompetent, inept fools coming out of Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. And we didn't know what the hell we were doing. We could not conduct a proper outbreak investigation. We could not. All of my classmates, and they all had graduate degrees. So we would look at each other and we say, well, what are we going to do now? Because at that point, everybody wants a job. And now you're the, you're the pick of the society because you have a master's in epidemiology. So all of my friends, I'm not going to name names, they all got plum jobs in all of the public health units across Canada, in Ontario, in, 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 in everywhere, in the federal government, in the provincial government, because we were big things then. We were the epidemiologists, right? We are masters in epi. I was one of them. Health Canada hired me fresh out of the box. I got a call from a director general at Health Canada telling me, well, I saw you at a provincial meeting and I heard some of the stuff you're reporting. And I would like the uh, executive assistant to get in touch with you and fly you out to Ottawa. I'm just sure. Again, I'm not naming names. Fly you to Ottawa. I want to have a meeting with you. I'm very interested in you coming on to Health Canada. Um, and there's a particular project I want you involved in. So, of course, I was fascinated and blown away. I just finished my graduate degree. I didn't even apply for a job yet. Anyway, long and short of it is that, um, is that I knew our limitations. And um, I went to Ottawa and I had this meeting and then I was hired. I was hired like the next day. Paperwork for me was done in one day. It was the most remarkable thing. And, and I, I didn't understand yet. All that to say is I continued working and then I was shipped overseas. I was sent to Asia on a two-year project, drug-resistant tuberculosis that helped that Canada, Health Canada was uh, executed and was funded by CEDA. Look at my resume, you will see it. And I was sent there because they claimed I had these unique skills that um, because of my immigrancy, I could get along in a very impoverished environment because I had to work and move around in places like Nepal, India, Pakistan, and all of these South Asian countries because there's a TB, HIV, drug resistant control project. And yes, I did very well there. It was, I, made the, I made the project very successful and the project did excellently and we achieved all of the gains. What, why am I explaining this is this, is that I understood in communications with all of my friends across a couple of years because whilst I was there, SARS won. I'm, I, I went through that and I tried to get you to my point. I went in 2002 and then in 2003 or so SARS won hit. I was still posted overseas. So I'm working, I had an office in the Canadian Embassy in Nepal, Kathmandu. They set up a health kind of sub office for me there so I can go there at night, communicate with Health Canada in Ottawa, and whoever I needed to talk to about this project I was running. And I'm talking to all my friends and my family in Canada because SARS-1 had hit, and you're seeing everything on the news. Toronto is the only first world city, the only first world city that experienced deaths. They have third world, dilapidated, deplorable places in this world to live that SARS visited and there were no deaths. But in our Toronto, there were 40 odd deaths. Why? I could tell you why. 
I remember I just explained I'm very unbridled now. It's because of the idiots like me that came out of epidemiology school who got these plum jobs across Canada, including Toronto, Ontario, and all those hospitals. They were my friends. They didn't know what the hell they were doing. And you saw them on television during SARS-1, all the posturing and the preening. Okay? One guy took the fall for the incompetence everywhere. That's Dr. Colin Dacuna. I know Dacuna. Smart guy, brilliant guy. But in everything, somebody needs to take the fall. He was the fall guy. But he took the fall, and he was a brilliant guy because of the ineptness of the rest of the public health system. People died from SARS-1 because the public health system didn't know what the hell it was doing. Fast forward to today, the public health system in Canada doesn't know what the hell it's doing. You watch all of those federal people talking in those task force, a bunch of idiots. You watch the ones in the provincial, a bunch of morons and idiots. I know many of them. You watch them at the city level, a bunch of idiots and morons. They don't know what the hell they are saying from day to day and what the hell they are doing. And we are in a situation in Canada, we lost all of our elderly medicine because of these idiots. And I'm not one anymore because I decided, I recognized my limitation. I recognized that the public health faculty of medicine schools in Canada produced junk. It still does. I went back to Oxford. I did a graduate degree in evidence-based medicine because I realized I could have taken my University of Toronto epidemiology degree and tossed it in the garbage. So I knew if I wanted to remain in this area, I needed to school up. I needed to learn more fast. From there, I went on and I did a doctorate at McMaster under Dr. Dyer. I am an expert now globally because I schooled myself up. I learned on the job. Today, we have all of my classmates in very high positions throughout Canada, in Ontario, etc. They don't know what the hell they're doing because they did nothing after that master's degree at UFT. That's the point. If that is, if you look at their resumes and that's it, and all they've done is worked in the organization they are and got promoted every year, you could understand today why we're in the position that we are, why we lost 44 people in SARS-1 when no, you see, that was an inquiry by itself that didn't happen. And I'll tell you one more thing, another little nugget. Coming out of SARS-1, it was so devastating what, what happened in Canada. I don't know if you could remember that they instituted an inquiry and they, they, they paid this guy a bunch of money, David Naylor. He was then at University of Toronto. He became the dean, I think, of medicine when I was actually there. He was there. He was the dean of the faculty of medicine. And they asked David Naylor, Dr. Naylor, to produce a report of how this could never happen again in Canada. So this is 2002, 2003. He produced what we know, of course, the Naylor Report. If you ever Google it, N-A-Y-L-O-R, Naylor. And if you read the Naylor Report, you will pretty much get the answer to what happened. And we hit the nail on the head. He spoke about the public health schools being shunned. He spoke about everything. But key request was, he said that Canada needed to set up 
its own CDC North, which is an agency like the Centers for Disease Control in the United States. And he, he coined the term CDC North so that it could function like a CDC, separate from the arms of the government. It could report directly to parliament and it could fix all of the wrongs in our public health schools and all of the inefficiencies and the devastation. Well, I believe the Kretchen government was the government in power then. And if I'm not mistaken, so I may be mistaken, I can't remember exactly, but whichever federal government in power, they screwed Canada. They screwed the, the nation because this is what they did. I can speak. I have no problem saying it today because I'm angry, remember? When you're angry, you say things. What they did was, I worked at Health Canada at that point. I was, a I was an employee of Health Canada. I might have been overseas, but I was an employee of Health Canada. So all of this was taking place while I was stationed overseas. So my director would tell me, they signed that, do that. What they did was, Health Canada is made up of separate branches, about five or six. So the Umbrella Health Canada has five or six individual branches. One is called the Health, back then it's called the, um, the Environmental Branch, Health and Environment, HEX. One was called um, Regulatory Branch. It looks at all of the issues around drug inspection, cell tissues, organs, etc. Um, all of these different branches. The branch that I belong to was called the Population and Public Health Branch, PPHB. That was the largest branch. And that branch housed all of the surveillance and epidemiology and stuff. Again, very suboptimal, but that was the famous branch of Health Canada, PPHB. <clears throat> what the government did, the federal government, they lied to the Canadian people. Again, a separate inquiry should be made for what they've done here. So I'm telling you. They just took the PPHB branch and they changed the name in one hour to the Public Health Agency of Canada. Hmm. Same exact employees, same exact offices, same, not one hour, not a five minute extra training, no new expertise, nothing. Just change our emails from your name with Ad Health Canada to your name at Public Health Agency. And then they came on the news and they made this big news flag. Well, Canada now is ready to respond to any global outbreak. We are like CDC, not. We have, we have a new agency of highly skilled, qualified experts called Public Health Agency of Canada. When it was the same idiots who worked at the public PPHP branch of Health Canada that played a role, including many of them right now. I'm not naming names. Many of them right now who are advising the federal government in Canada. I see them. I see them on stage. I see them talking. Many of them I worked with, many of them were involved in SARS-1, and it's the same disaster back then as a disaster today. And they're working at the Public Health Agency of Canada, like I worked at the Public Health Agency of Canada. So it was a big lie. It was a con. It was a deceit on the, American, on the Canadian people. There was no extra skills, no nothing. It was just politics. They needed to do it because of the Naylor report. They paid David Naylor a lot of money to write, investigate, write the report. So he came up with a good report. I have to give him credit. I'm not just disputing the guy, but the main finding is set up a dedicated agency that could really 
look at epidemics and pandemics and, and, and fix the, the decrepit public health system in Canada. We've never done that. Sorry to say, it's the same damn thing. Yeah, I mean that's that's some shocking revelation there. I mean, it, and it, although it is it is typical of how these governments function. I mean, they're always looking for window dressing as opposed to real change, and uh, you know, exercising some some modifications and actual work. I mean, it's almost like the less they can do, the happy they are, the happy they are. And I and I would challenge you, you know, when you're you're requesting a legal solution. And to be holding people accountable, and, and and certainly that must happen in this case. However, it certainly seems that Canada, more so than anywhere else on the planet right now, the courts seem to be in in complete absence of their or dereliction of their duty. Uh, yes. And speaking with many um, senior lawyers and attorneys. Uh, they pretty much unanimously are telling me that at the Supreme Court level, those justices are liberal appointees and the the possibility that they rule against the government is very, very slim. And I think the other problem here, uh, and of course, this is also related to the case that I have uh, against the BC government and the federal government uh, in response to these COVID regulations, uh, where Rocco Galati has about 18,000 pages of expert testimony. You're asking a justice of the law to evaluate highly detailed uh, and, and often probably complicated scientific information. Is that really the person who can adjudicate on that material? This isn't law. This is science. And we're kind of maybe even looking at the wrong professional. Uh, these tribunals, should they occur, really should have folks like yourself, uh, Peter McCullough at the helm, folks who can look at the science and and produce a, a, a report from that science taking, you know, the, the, the garbage mainstream narrative, the poorly conducted, poorly designed studies, which are, are designed to produce a result in favor of the official narrative versus the, the multitude of papers and, and, and peer-reviewed work, which is showing directly the opposite. And so I think we're, we're in a very difficult situation here. Uh, and per perhaps this is particular to Canada because it doesn't seem like in America that the corruption of the courts is as great. And of course, speaking with uh, uh, Dr. Reiner Fulmish, he has said that the, the, this corruption of the courts is almost universal in the world. And interestingly, India, which seems very strange to me, but India seems to have the least corrupt uh, legal system on the planet presently. And that's why he's embarking on one of his cases there. Um, so I'm not sure of how, you know, how do we move forward? Do we, do we demand, uh, some form of a tribunal similar to the Nuremberg trials? Uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, here in Canada, we just had this federal election where 60% of Canadians have admitted that they're, they're idiots and, and fools as, as you've, uh, uh, called some of these health, the workers within health Canada, you know, these people believe in communism they believe in the official narrative. They think that wearing a mask is going to save them, that people should be forced, forcibly injected with a, an experimental product. Uh, so we, we're in a, we're in a, you know, folks like you and I, unfortunately, are the, the extreme, uh, you know, we've been labeled as right-wing supremacists, and clearly that doesn't apply in your case. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, the statements to, to, to label somebody like yourself as a right-wing extremist for adhering to real scientific information and saying, you know, do not mask my children. I refuse to wear a mask. I refuse to be vaccinated. And now we have, again, a, you know, a, a, an esteemed gentleman like yourself 
uh, with with worldwide experience. So you are no longer able to leave your home province unless you're driving. Uh, you you know you, you you can't cross to America to visit your colleagues or to to conduct work there. Um, I mean, this is a shameful situation. Uh, and of course, here in British Columbia, and I think it's similar for you in in Ontario. Uh, towards the end of the month, I believe it's the twenty sixth. Uh, we're looking at probably the loss of somewhere around 20 to 25% of our nursing staff uh, in hospitals and, and nursing homes, long-term care homes, uh, police services, fire services. I mean, my phone's been ringing off the hook the last couple of weeks here with people in a panic. You know, what do I do? You know, single mothers that are nurses, you know, that are completely despondent, uh, firefighters that are, you know, about to lose their career. Um, and in, in this situation, and of course, we also have the example of the pilots more recently. Um, and these aren't people that we can easily replace. Uh, you know, in, in the case of the fire services, there are many, many candidates to fill those positions. However, somebody who's green that simply has a certificate that he can do the job isn't the same service member as somebody who has 15 years or 20 years of, or even five years of service. And of course, the same goes for police, the same goes for the nurses, uh, et cetera. So, you know, what, what are, what's your message to the, the rank and file Canadians, that the 60% there that feel that these are justifiable measures? You know, how do, how do we reach these people? How do we convince them or, or educate them that they've been lied to and that their position clearly is not meritorious? Well, you know, you you hit the nail on the head. And the reality is this. Look, I'm a Canadian citizen and I love Canada. I came, I, I, I immigrated to Canada about 30 years ago to go to school and all that stuff. Um, I have uh, legal status uh, a few years ago. And, uh, and again, out of full disclosure, um, uh, I have legal status in the United States. Um, in a very niche category, United States has this immigration category where if the United States government thinks that an individual um, brings a unique set of skills that they, that they have in short supply and that they need, uh, they process you without, because I didn't have like sponsorship and all of that, I just applied. But I applied in a particular area that um, I, was I was assessed as an expert scientist for the nation that would bring for, to them um, skills that they didn't necessarily readily have and they could benefit the United States. So, so I have the ability, I can, I can, I can reside there, let's say, but, but I'm speaking, I'm speaking here as a Canadian. I am in Toronto right now. And, um, I think what has happened is if you isolate people, well, first of all, I think we've discussed this before. When we look at all of the evidence on the lockdowns, and you see, the problem now is we, 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 we're so giddy and confused about the madness going on with the vaccines, that we kind of forgetting what the government did to people and killed so many people with the lockdowns. We can't forget the lockdowns and the school closure, because I can tell you, I was in the Trump administration then, and what happened in the United States, I know happened here. We were getting daily reports coming up from all of the states daily of business business owners because of the business lockdowns, self-harming and committing suicide, of the employees who were laid off killing themselves across America, of little children harming themselves and committing suicide. This was a major, major problem, and it was frightening the administration. And you could have seen a, a, a deliberate push by Trump then to push states to open up and to 
open all the schools and to stop the lockdown. What you saw on the podium on a day-to-day -day basis, yes, he had ramped up the, 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 the political election season had begun, but he was having a day-to-day -day fight with his task force because there were members on that task force <clears throat> who wanted the society to remain closed and schools closed. Yet we were seeing the data that not from the virus, but from the actual lockdowns in school, it was causing way more deaths. So <clears throat> we knew that, that the crushing harms from these policies that were unscientific, that we never did before, was so severe that we had to stop. But yet we had these states and these places like in Canada and these provinces not only not stopping, they were hardening the lockdowns and they were causing, they've caused so much loss of life and suffering. You cannot forget that. And that is something we need to go back to and hold people to account. Right? We're dealing with the vaccine disaster, but the response to this pandemic was so insane and, and wrong. And so they, 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 there's no science, there's, there's no evidence to back up anything. And I think if you isolate people and you lock them down, for a year, 15 months, 18 months, and you separate them and you barrage them every day with negative, oh, in, in cases going up, cases, which is a lie, because they change the name of infection to cases to lie to you. An infection is not a case. You can be infected with something and have no clinical sequelae, have no problem with it. But they, they screwed with the minds of the people and you lock them down and you barrage them with, 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 with lies. And then you, it's very easy to manipulate people's perceptions after a long period of that. So much so you could bend them to your will now. And that's what they're doing. They, I think, I think Canadians are so tired. And, and in one sense, they wanted to believe and trust in the government officials. But I can tell you, I work for the federal government in Canada. I work for the provincial government too. I work for the federal government. I worked overseas for them. I worked in Canada for them. The government is not interested in your well-being. The, 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 the federal, the, the, the public health agency, they don't care about your health and well-being. They're a government agency unto themselves. This is about their jobs and their salaries and their pensionable time. It's not about your health and well-being. When they say, why do you think they caught Yafi, Barbara Yafi, in the province? If, if you could remember, on a hot mic, telling the other guy, Williams, I only say what they tell me to say on this piece of paper. What she said there was the truth. She couldn't give a crap. She didn't even want to be sitting there talking to the, to the province. They couldn't give a hoot. Whether you live or die, they don't care. None of them care. And that's the issue. You need to wake up and understand that. What they did to you and me and us in Canada with the lockdowns was perverse. It was it was reprehensible, so perverse. They suffered people. They shifted the burden on the, on the poor also in such a way that the poor were unable to cope. And children, poor children, especially minority children in America and Canada, wherever, they didn't care. Because when you talk to one of these affluent people, these, these laptop class people, cafe latte people, they, they, they tell me, boy, Paul, I'm so upset now. Why, why are we opening up? Why are we stopping the lockdowns? You know, I, I could walk my damn dog three times a day. I could go and have coffee down the road and hang out with my neighbors. 
stopping the law. I might have to go back to my office. I'm very angry over that. So you understand, this is just a sick. This is not based on science. This is based on politics. When Doug Ford gave that order some months ago, if you remember, in the province of Ontario that gave police, he said police should have in, now have increased power. If you come down your drive, no, you go outside, because now we're going on this crazy lockdown like what they're doing in Alberta and Australia. They tried that about three months in Ontario, if you remember. And, and Ford said police could just stop you at random and quiz you over what you're doing outside your house. The public pushed back so much that day. The next day, he had to rescind it. Now, I am a public health official. I worked for WHO. I worked, I worked in places in U.S. government. I can't even discuss the nature of what I did. I was sent to Asia for Canada to represent Canada on a drug-resistant TBHIV project to seven South Asian nations. I worked in Russia, Turkey, Ukraine, Poland for WHO. Now, I could tell you, if it was a serious public health matter, don't matter what the public says, you have the legal authority to implement it and to enforce it. You didn't have to reverse nothing. Doug Ford reversed it because he had no teeth, no legal basis, no nothing. It was just that night they sat down, a bunch of these people decided, well, what next could I do to put the thumb down on the people and to control the power? That's why, thank God for the Toronto police. I have to give them a shout out because I like the blue. I support police. I am a supporter of the blue and the military. Thank God the police came out and the OPP and they said, we're not going to enforce that, Mr. Ford. And he had to reverse it. If he had a credible basis, he could have left that in place, but he did not because he had no basis. These bastards just making stuff up at night. What next could we do? Because it was over 15 months ago, this, this emergency, they call it a pandemic, was done. And they knew it. This is just about dragging it out and suffering people. I mean, think about what, how I'm going to explain. You just mentioned nurses, right? Your nurses and stuff are going to lose jobs. To really understand you, the hilarity of it or the ridiculousness of it is this. In New York, right now you have nurses protesting. They have been mandated by the governor in New York. So whatever is there is the same message. Consider it the province. They have been mandated that all of them need to be vaccinated, else you lose your job. Similar to what you just said, right? Okay. Think about what I'm going to say next. You have nurses who are getting to keep their job in New York State who are double vaccinated six months ago. And they're running about, mm, I got my vaccine, so I am we know the data. The data shows the Pfizer vaccine, which was used, antibodies dropped 40% a month. After three months on the Pfizer jab, you have zero, zero antibodies. So these nurses right now at six months, double jab, have no immune response. That's number one. The nurses who do not want to get the vaccine, of course they don't have an immune response because they're not taking the vaccine. Those two nurses are the same exact place in terms of antibodies. Yet the idiots who get in the job, getting to keep their job. Well, I shouldn't say the idiots. The nurses, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. The nurses, they are good people. They just, they need to live. Yeah. 
people people suffering they need their income so the nurses who have the job but have no antibodies get into work yet the nurses who don't get the job so still no antibodies not get into work how ridiculous is that and that's how you have to look at it this is not science this is like a, a comedy it's like yeah it's like a, a shakespearean shakespearean tragedy and you know and, and on that point um uh, you know the the uh, immunity acquired from an actual COVID infection seems to be completely absent from these discussions. So if I'm a healthcare worker and through the last 18 months, I've, I've contracted COVID, I'm recovered. Well, I don't, you know, unless I have some other comorbidities, I have no need for this vaccine. And in fact, it could harm me. And so now I'm actually far more, I'm a more robust healthcare worker than the double jabbed a healthcare worker who doesn't have any antibodies anymore and potentially has some other immunosuppressive uh, aspects to my physiology now because of receiving this. So, you know, we, we're truly in a, in a, in a realm of madness and, and something else that, you know, since we're, we're since, since we're calling out the, the, the perpetrators of this fraud, I think we also need to point the finger at the MDs and the GPs in this country, certainly who are, who are, who are, you know, continuing the charade that ivermectin and HCQ are, are dangerous substances which should not be used. And I know from speaking with a number, again, a number of the nurses that are related to the doctors, that the GPs now sit at home, they provide telemedicine, they have their assistants schedule uh, an appointment every five to seven minutes, they're probably sitting at their desk in their underwear, and they're churning through clients or patients, you know, as, as quickly as humanly possible. They may do one to two uh, patient uh, in-person visits uh, at the office uh, a week. And in the hospitals, they are double and triple billing for the same patient. So uh, doctors, physicians that were earning, you know, X number of dollars over the last 18 months, in many cases, are now 4x of what their earnings were because of this amplification. And of course, now, you know, you were making 250, 300, now you're making 900, 1.2, something of that nature. And why would you ever want this to stop? You know, it's, 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 we've created this great, we've created this gravy train for all these people, which of course is completely the antithesis of their, of their service oaths and is not the, the, the proper discharge of their medical duties. And, and they are, again, in that group of murderers. Yes, and I will say it this way. We are in the position that we are in today because of the medical professional. And I'll say it why. Because I worked with many of them in the US government and most of these people, again, are my friends in Canada. The C-19 group, the COVID-19 group, I belong to the United States and the one in Canada. They're only doctors and surgeons, right? So we talk 24-7. We're going through the science 24-7. These are the ones who are standing up. But I'm not going to talk about the others. They tell me privately, I don't want this to stop. They, there you go. They, there you go. I, I, I have doctor friends who've told me they work in the ER in Canada in different hospitals in Toronto. What you've seen on the news about, about um, uh, excess and about uh, the, the place overrun, BS, BS. I even have video and, and, and emails and stuff some have shared with me of what's going on inside of the hospital. It's empty. It's the most mind-blowing thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the reality is I agree. Because the doctors in our society, anywhere in the world, were given this special privileged place, highly paid, etc. 
they actually were the best in a society because of the fact that they look at the healthcare and they take care of people, etc. And they were given this privileged role. It's over for them. <laughs> doctors are looked at. Doctors, I don't think they realize the 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 the, um, the way we look at them now, the disdain. Because we understand, we understand. It's not only that they were on the fence. They went on the other side of the yeah. fence and they worked against proper medicine. And you mentioned Nuremberg. I need people to understand something. And remember, we wrote an article, Dr. Howard Tenenbaum and myself, we wrote an article that was published um, in one of these op-eds on the Nuremberg Code. And we looked at all of the 10 tenets of the Nuremberg Code. And every single one is violated. Yes. And I want, at the end of this, I don't care which doctor, what rule you, if you, if, put it this way, those people out of 1945, out of World War II and even Tuskegee and all of that, they tried to claim always that they were following orders. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. Didn't work then. It's not going to work now. No. I want yeah. them responsible for this yeah. because they, yeah. they have played a role in denying early treatment. They are playing a role in letting these governments get away with this yeah. madness. Yeah. Doctors had come together. I mean, look at, look at it in Canada. Look at the people like Dr. Mark Trozzi, Dr. Francis Christian, Dr. Byron Brittle, Dr. Malthouse, Dr. Phillips, Dr. Colvinda Gill. Look at these people. These people are, have brilliant careers, very intelligent people. I know these people, their minds, so smart, so every, they're getting pilloried. Pilloried, why? Because they ask questions. They ask questions about what was happening here. They, 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 they questioned in the vaccinated kids. They, they're advocating for early treatment that's saving lives. I mean, this is a rep and the rest of the doctors just standing by. Why? Because as you explained, they're the gravy train. Why would they want it to stop? Yeah. Why? So they've sold their profession out. They've sold yeah. it out and we have no more. We don't look at doctors the same and they're going to realize when all of this is over, it's going to take them decades to be held back in the same esteem. Because I could look at the man on the street and the woman on the street who don't even have a high school education, but they've spent the last 15, 18 months listening and reading and thinking. And they are more informed, more yes. sophisticated on COVID than these damn doctors with this big set of money. These doctors should be ashamed of themselves and hang their heads in shame. And I yes. hope they pay one day. Yes. And so it's actually an interest, interesting movement, which has started here in a small town in British Columbia uh, called Ezra Wellness. And it's a, a group of nurses that were facing termination. And so it's a essentially a new model of, of uh, patient care. So rather than go to the walk-in clinic or to your GP and he spends five minutes and maybe writes you a prescription and kicks you out the door, uh, this is now a, a nurse-led um, and other healthcare practitioners so the patient will come in, patient gets 20, 30 minutes of time, there's charting, there's evaluation of all of it, you know, all of the aspects, your, your mental well-being, you know, your physical well-being, what are you eating, you know, to come up with a real clear picture of your health. And, and a contract is then entered into with the patients to, to provide wellness because, you know, let's face it, our, we are in a sickness treatment system. And, and we want to be, we want to change that into a wellness-based modality so that you don't wind up in the hospital. And so the, the COVID Care Alliance of Canada has actually come on board uh, to, to back this movement. And it's, uh, you know, it's only a couple of weeks old now, but it's, it's taking off like wildfire. 
uh, Kristen Nagel from Global Frontline Nurses, uh, I believe this evening or Monday evening is going to launch this uh, nationwide. And we are going to see with this movement that people will no longer be visiting their doctor, their GP, because they'll have no use for that person. And so yeah. these people who have uh, essentially abused their fellow citizens and, and profited from them, they are going to be knocked down from their high perch and they will be the ones uh, you know, looking for work like everyone else. Yes, I hope so. I, I hope and pray so, because they've contributed to a lot of wrong. The governments have not been able to get away with what they've been doing unless the, 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 the doctors have played a role. And you know why too, sir? Because many of them have half of the appointment at the hospital, half of the university, and they do some teaching also, and they do a little bit of research. All of them, suck off the taxpayer in Canada and the United States and in Britain off taxpayer money to fund their garbage research. They want to study the mating call of the grasshopper and all these kind of bizarre <laughs> things. Things that have no applicability to my life. But anyway, they want to conduct research. Problem is, in, in, let's say the United States. I mean, I, I'm saying, which is a fact, the NIH gets about 52, 54 billion a year funding Wow. the United States government. And the NIH then disburses that funding to all of the academic universities and teaching hospitals across America. They also disburse that funding to other granting agencies across America and the world, the entire world. So when you are a doctor working in a hospital or you're a scientist in your university and you have your academic program and you have to, you, you know, you talk to them every minute, oh, well, I'm writing a grant, I'm so busy right now, because that's their life. They cannot work in the real world and hold on a proper job and work in private industry. They have to stay in their little cot in the university lab writing grants. So they all withhold to Dr. Fauci. And that is why the garbage that he spouted for the last 20 months has remained unchallenged, except by people like me. He's talked utter crap, utter garbage. I can't tell you for 19 months, and even when I was in Washington, and I had dealings with, with, with his people and and... I wouldn't say exactly what my nature of work was with him, but I always listened to what he had to say. And I used to walk away and say, but this guy just talk, spoke a bunch of, of crap. Nothing he says is scientifically accurate. Nothing. Even up to today, I don't understand how he's advising the present administration. That said, think about 30 years at 50 billion. It's about 1 trillion. Who? Who has a one trillion dollar allocation that's well across their desk they could dispose to the rest to, to people so this guy over the last decades amassed a lot of power power in the sense of he has funded different universities and different academic institutions across the world and all in america so there are doctors who told me when i was in dc from cdc from nih from fda they work part-time doing research and they took because we had to speak, right? We had to collaborate. Paul, you know, a lot of what you're saying, a lot of what those other people are saying is correct. What Dr. Atlas is saying is correct. But we can't say anything because I wouldn't get my grant approved. You know, I, would, I lose my appointment. This is all about that. And in Canada today, we have the CIA chartered operating the same manner. If you are adopting these universities or scientists, you can't speak out about the madnesses going on. And that's why they're quiet. Many of these scientists and doctors, they suck off the taxpayers' teeth 
and they suck off this money to run the the whatever research they're doing. They're always writing a grant for something, and they cannot speak out because they will not get the grant. Because I'm telling you, let me let me be as blunt, and I'm not gonna I'm not calling names. I got a telephone call one day. I was my wife and myself, my youngest child. I went to the gas station. I was sitting on the car before I pull off. Cell phone ran. My wife said, Paul, your cell is ringing. So I took the call. Very senior person in university. I wouldn't tell you the department because I just don't want anybody identified. He said, you know, we were chatting. We were friends because over the years, you know, I played a role when, when, I, when McMaster had admissions to the graduate program. They would ask me to be one of the assistant professors who assess the students. And, you know, I, I made a lot of good friends and stuff. And, and again, I'm very good friends with Dr. Guy. I hold him in my heart dearly. He's, he's a good man. Person on the other line saying, you know, Paul, in my position, I want to let you know that um, the university is not too happy. Could you stop writing? Could you stop speaking? He was blunt. Could you stop speaking and talking and writing? And, you know, I'm listening and talking and say, okay, you know, I, I, okay, I, I, I will stop. He was telling me that they're going to cut you, Paul, from Mac if you don't stop. Because what you are saying does not align. He told me with the administration, with the university, and the university is taking a lot of heat from alumni who call and complain that this Dr. Paul Alexander is pushing early treatment and, and where's the university position on that and, 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 and all of this. And he worked for Trump. And uh, I didn't know Canadians hated Trump so much, to be honest with you, because I, I actually <laughs> think many Canadians love Trump. Yeah, it's, it's only the 60% that are morons and love communism that, uh, that yeah, hate Trump. And, and, <laughs> And, and 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 the thing about it is that I, I, I was actually told I got two calls that one and I got it again and said you know Paul we ask you not to blah 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 so when July thirty first came of this year every three or four years your academic appointment has to be renewed and you just submit simple paperwork just advising them that you want to remain on strength and you want to continue teaching or whatever and I got an email informing me that you know paul is very gut-wrenching this email is like i have to i have to put it in a picture and hang it on my wall because I, if i if i made it public people will know who it came from so i can't do that but but the words my wife has read it over and over it's the most hilarious thing paul it's as if i was shedding skin paul it is the most terrible thing ever in life for me to sit down and find words to write this communication to you because you have been such a good stalwart for the university and such a good scholar and contributor but we have to inform you right now that we will not be able to renew your appointment so so i knew it was coming and then people in the inside told me paul you know it was because of the early treatment they were very unhappy that you're pushing the early treatment you wrote all those papers all of that now it hurt me initially because McMaster I love. I made a lot of good friends there and it's a good institution. And as I said, I school in the Department of Art, Evidence-Based Medicine there and Research Methods. I will tell you hands down, it's the best in the world. And I am called on globally for my technical input because of my training at Mac. So I'll give Mac that credit. I will not slander Mac. But Mac got his balls clipped by whomever. To, to, to tell them you need to edit this guy because 
this guy is like he is speaking for early treatment he's against the vaccine particularly in children he's questioning this he belongs to this group with McCullough. these people these people are rogue scientists we're not rogue scientists we are actually talking to science <laughs> This is the most fascinating thing ever. So, and, and I mean, Paul, this this really speaks to who you are because, you know, given given the, the fact that they've thrown you under the bus, they've tried to besmirch your reputation, and you still have loyalty to the institution and, and to the and to the and the faculty there. I mean, th th this again speaks to your character and the fact that you're not you're not you're not a lunatic, you're not a fringe you know element within the scientific community. That you're speaking truth. And that you will not have your truth silenced, and and the truth of of the science, your scientific peers, and and you know yet we have the opposition that continues to to sling you know uh, uh, garbage. It's propaganda. It's it's weaponized words which are essentially meaningless and are, and are baseless in fact. And and you know this it's this is a very very poignant expression of of you know who these people really are that are behind the propaganda side. And who the people are who are fighting for truth and freedom, and and certainly you know you are not doing this to for self-aggrandization. I mean, you've been dismissed from your faculty posts. You've been criticized. I'm sure there's there you have peers within your network that won't speak to you because again you you are extolling the virtues of early treatment and the, the dangers of the vaccine. So there is no upside for you in this process other than living your truth and being your own personal integrity. And, and I think people, when they hear this, even if you're one of the 60% and you believe that the government is protecting you and the rest of it, you cannot fault somebody like yourself. Well, well, I like how you, I appreciate how you explain it. And I'll say this, all of us, the group of us, I can speak for myself. I have earned not one dog, not one penny from any, I mean, I appeared on Fox News again three days ago. They called me. They said, Paul, we need you to go to a studio in Toronto so we could tape. We want you to do a segment on why the vaccines are dangerous in children. So I went, they sent me a limo. I went down, I did it. They dropped me back home, all of that. They don't pay you for that. Wherever you see me on, like you, I'm sure you are interviewed. Nobody pays you for that. You either doing it out of the, the, the benevolence in you. You have something to say. You want to. You want to share the information? I mean, I'll give you an example. About two months ago, a study had dropped from Israel, the Gazette study, G-A-Z-I-T. Yes, And I'm yes. sure you know which one I'm talking about. Yes, yes. That's, that's, that one study by Gazette et al., okay, a, a profound sample size, almost like a million people, that one study should have stopped the debate on these vaccines, whether natural immunity is more superior than vaccine whether you should get the vaccine, et cetera, and, and the harms and everything. I mean, it was so ele elegantly done. The results were so profound. Such massive risk in the double vaccinated to be infected and to spread the virus. Yet, that study is covered up. Nobody wants to talk about it. But it's a profound study. It should have ended, one and done, any debate. It was so profound. And uh, it's what is guiding us because we realize we're not wrong. Yeah. The double vaccinated people are a problem, right? And they don't understand because the governments in Canada and the different levels of these task forces, federal, they're not explaining to the people that, that there are several problems with the vaccine. The vaccine, is, the vaccine is causing harm, but the vaccine is suboptimal and it's driving the pandemic now. 
particularly yes. against the unvaccinated. So, you know, it's a it's a fascinating place where it's almost and the doctors they're not even concerned that they're not following the science. Yeah, they are against the real actual science. Yeah. Yeah. So, Paul, then what is our pathway forward? You know, how, 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 you know, how let's, because I think the 60% in Canada anyway, you know, they, they have uh, bought the, they've bought the lies. They're, they've been hypnotized. They're in a trance. It's going to be very difficult to reach them. But we still have the rest of the population that at least doesn't believe in communism and may have a certain, you know, questioning mind as, as to what's going on here. For those people, how do we move forward and try to reestablish some sense of normalcy or improve things? And, and I've kind of uh, recently thrown the, the, the phrase around of rather than this new world order that Klaus Schwab is talking about, we need to create a new human order, one that's a more we need a more humane society, one that is based on real science, exclusive of this propaganda and, and this heavy pressure from big pharma, government, and all these other agencies. Well. Again, I like how you explained it and you laid it out there. And I think, I think it's as simple as this, you know. Um, the powers that be, they use this PCR test to create this problem. Because this PCR test, as you know, is flawed, is junk. 95, 97% false positive. So, so I think we need to wake up one day and just say, that's it, enough. No more of this testing. So if you were to say, Paul, give me a four or five point plan and way forward to, to, to close this out. Yes, please. This way. And this is what we were saying. I was saying 18 months ago, 19 months ago, even in when I was on the Trump administration. And I have to say also, I still support President Trump. I do. And uh, for a lot of things he did for the minorities, the things that I saw and I knew from on the inside, I think he would have been, he would have gone on and won as the greatest person. I don't want to get into all of, what happened in the election? I'm just giving you my point of view. I'm going to say this now. Five-point plan. One, we properly, strongly, double-down, triple-down protections of the vulnerable in our society. That is number one key. If that is not done, nothing else will work. So you must protect the vulnerable in the society first. Vulnerable are the elderly in your homes, your private house, and elderly in nursing home and long-term facilities. You use creative strategies. You do whatever you can to protect them, not just for COVID, but for any future outbreak to come. That's number one. Whilst you're protecting them, so protecting them means stop staff from entering the homes unless uh, the staff is, uh, you, you ensure that the staff is not infected, etc. If there's an outbreak, maybe isolate the staff in one part of the home and they don't interact. Don't let the staff leave for two weeks at a time, pay the staff extra, all of these things. So step one, protect the elderly. Step two, whilst you're protecting the elderly as your default position, you make early outpatient treatment available across the board, across the society. So you allow doctors to prescribe, you allow pharmacists to dispense, you don't take away doctor's licenses as you're doing now in Canada, crazily suffering them. So you, so as you protect the elderly, you make early patient, outpatient treatment available. Third point, third step, whilst you're doing that, you do some good public service messaging to the public about the importance of vitamin D supplementation. 
because vitamin D emerged um, as uh, very critical for your T cell immunity to function optimally. And we found that maybe 97% of persons who died from end-stage COVID were vitamin D deficient. Yes. Whilst public, whilst public servicing on vitamin D, you also talk to the public in those public service messages about healthier lifestyles, including dropping some body weight. Why? Because obesity emerged as the principal superloaded risk factor behind the age. In other words, in fact, you could obesity gives way to age in COVID, that you could show me a 20-year-old who is, weighs 400 pounds, that person will have a problem with COVID. So, so, so the reality is obesity and, 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 and so the people say, well, why would he pick? I'm not picking on overweight persons. I'm talking to the science here. We have science by Margaret Al that showed us that the adipose tissue, the fat cells, express or accumulate the ACE2 receptor second to only the brain cells. Then the other cells in the body accumulates and has the ACE2 receptor that the virus uses to infect your cell. So then you have the testes in males, the ovaries in females, the endometrium, etc. But the fat cells are number two. And that helped explain to us why in some instances, in some countries, 80% of those who died were obese. It's a fact. In America, and I know in Canada also, a large portion were obese. So again, first, protect the elderly. Second, while you're doing that, outpatient treatment, make it available. Third, public service messages on vitamin D and body weight. Fourth, stop all mass um, testing of asymptomatic people. Does not work, it's only harmful, it's garbage. It does nothing. You never ever mass test asymptomatic people. You only test people who have symptoms, who are unwell. At the same time, you stop the mass quarantine of asymptomatic people. You only isolate or quarantine symptomatic people who are sick. You do not quarantine well. You do not quarantine people at the border of entry or the airport who are well, who are, who are asymptomatic. That is insane policy. That's garbage. doesn't work. And the last point, sir, the fifth of this five-point plan is open the society fully. No masks, no lockdowns, no school closures. Allow the well, healthy, young, middle-aged people in your society to live free. Let them make reasonable, sensible, precautionary decisions. Let them make decisions about their lives. Don't lock them down. Don't isolate them. Don't close schools. Because schools closing schools kill the children. Listen, I'll tell you, we had instances in the United States where parents were coming to the emergency room. And this was coming up all the way up to the White House, where parents were seeing mothers were present with an eight-year-old in her arms telling the ER doctor, doctor, I think I may have killed my child. And she would explain she beat the child. They beat the child to a frazzle because her and her husband have been locked down. They've lost their jobs. They're fighting each other and beating each other. Now they're abusing the children in the home. And, and they're begging the doctor to help them because the, the child has broken limbs. And, and this was happening across America. So we knew when President Trump was on the podium fighting Fauci and fighting Burks to open his society because he was seeing what were the ramifications of the lockdown on these poor children. Children always pay the price. And women. 
We maintain Christ always. Yes, yes. Well, that, that's that's phenomenal, sir. Uh, on point number one of protecting the 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 most vulnerable, would you also encourage a pro- a prophylactic use of uh, ivermectin or HCQ? Some of these antivirals, uh, you know, we're certainly seeing evidence in in Africa where they're d- using these antivirals for malaria that they have a lower incidence. Would that add that to that point? Yes, yes. When I listen to Dr. McCullough, Dr. Zelenko, um, Dr. Corey, Dr. Rich, etc. And we look at the evidence and you, and you study it and you read it, you realize that these antivirals, not just from a treatment point of view, but if used prophylactically, uh, do have a potent role and really reduces the risk. So I would, of course. So when I say make early outpatient, yeah, I could tweak that and say uh, and use prophylactically. And remember, I'm not telling people to go and self-medicate yourself. You know, you have to make reasonable decisions and, and, and judgments. Talk to your doctor too. You must find somebody who talk the language with you. Tell your doctor, look, I made a decision. I want to use ivermectin. So what's the dose suitable to me, my body weight? Help me with that part of it. I already decided I use an ivermectin. And I have the ivermectin. Can you tell me the dose? So you, you, you know, you get some little expert input there in your decision making. But yes, absolutely. Okay, fantastic. Well, sir, I, I appreciate you tremendously and, and your fervor uh, and all the work you're doing. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate yours. <laughs> uh, and hopefully we get to the other side of this and uh, we can sit down and have a beer and maybe sit on a beach somewhere in the Caribbean yes, and enjoy yes, some sunshine. Yes, yes. Yes. So, and, then, and in closing, um, if, if folks would like to learn more about you and your work, uh, the best site's probably the AIER. Where you yeah, do yeah, yeah, I have a lot. And, and right now, you know, my sister, she's actually in the island. She wrote me, she said, you know, Paul, you've written so much now and appeared so many places. I'm appearing in a lot of the islands now, giving them talks and stuff. She said, you know, I want to I wanna build a website for you. And she's building it right now with someone. She says so could, people could find you there because, you know, you've gotten to that point where you should. So as soon as I have that, I'm going to write you. Okay. Yeah. And, that, and that's important because in the islands, I mean, uh, w- one of my friends there, uh, Uncle Val Hogland, I mean, he passed away from, from COVID and Jamaica's playing the same stupid game that Canada is. They're not offering any treatments. You know, you get sick, you die. And and, and the, the state, and I'm sure uh, back home in Trinity, the same thing. I mean, the, the, the those tourism-based economies, the poor, the people down there are suffering. You know, people th- here suffering. in Canada think they're suffering. What is happening in, in the Caribbean nations right now is deplorable. And we need we need to end this because you know those are beautiful people down there and you know they they need to get back to work and people need to need to get back to a semblance of normalcy and some hope fantastic sir you have a great day we'll chat again in the future thank you very much sir thank you my friend bye-bye